This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. episode of Inside COVID-19, we speak to Sandile Tele, a 32-year-old researcher at the Durban-based African Health Research Institute, who has made global headlines for an important breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19. Tele found a new way to grow the 501v2 variant, and in so doing, reports the Financial Times, helped show scientists around the world that the variant can escape antibodies and lead to reinfection. Also in this episode... We hear from our partners at Bloomberg about how pharma companies are racing to retool their vaccine strategies as fast-spreading and potentially dangerous mutations of the virus emerge. First, the main COVID-19 stories making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Business. As of this week, nearly 110 million cases of COVID-19 have been recorded around the world. Nearly 2.5 million people have died of the new disease. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. The U.S. has been the hardest-hit country, with not far off half a million people dying. Brazil, Mexico, India and the U.K. are also among the countries with the highest number of deaths from COVID-19. About 120,000 people have died in Britain. South Africa has the highest number of deaths recorded on the continent, with about 48,500 people dying from COVID-19, according to government figures. South Africa's muddled acquisition of the AstraZeneca vaccine from India, which was found on delivery to have an expiry date of April and not the normal six-month one, continues. That's according to Medical Brief, which says that after India refused to exchange the vaccine or give a refund, the health department said it would on-sell the consignment to the African Union at cost. But now, reports the Mail and Guardian, it appears that South Africa is having to sell at half price. More than half of South Africans probably have already been infected with SARS-CoV-2, with black people three to five times more likely than white people to have antibodies to the virus. That's according to the South African National Blood Service. Discovery Group CEO and founder Adrian Gore agrees with this conclusion, saying that South Africa's sky-high excess death number indicates that more than 50% of the population have already been infected with COVID-19. Based on the excess death rate, Discovery estimates that the country's true infection rate must be above half of the population. Gore is quoted as saying, The number of people who have been infected, in our view, is probably over 50% of the country. This pandemic has had a traumatic effect on people, on the economy. You have to fight it with everything you can. He said he stresses the importance of helping to make the national rollout a success. Discoveries often asked why it does not procure the vaccine for its members. He says there are two reasons why. Firstly, there is a global shortage of vaccines, and the pharmaceutical companies manufacturing the vaccines will currently sell only to national governments. Second, there are specific risk factors that make some people more susceptible than others. This means that to be both fair and effective, the vaccination program must be planned and implemented at a country level. However, he says that Discovery is deeply involved in these processes and has been working closely with the National Department of Health, Business for South Africa, Business Leadership South Africa and other stakeholders. And Discovery has been engaging directly with several of the key vaccine manufacturers. 
Should their position of selling only to governments change in the near future, Discovery will rapidly engage with the Department of Health to agree on a role for Discovery and other private sector players to become directly involved in procuring and distributing the vaccine, he says. Blomberg reports that Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine stimulated roughly two-thirds lower levels of neutralizing antibodies against the South African variant of the coronavirus. This is in a lab study. The Pfizer results are part of tests of its vaccine against a lab-created virus that had all the mutations found in the South African variant, which is thought to spread faster than earlier versions. The fast-spreading virus variant first found in the UK now makes up more than 20% of cases in Germany. That's according to the German health minister, Jens Spahn. He says we must assume that it could also dominate here soon. The share of variants from South Africa and Brazil is also rising in Germany, but at a much lower level. Two variants of the coronavirus first identified in the UK and in California appear to have combined into a heavily mutated hybrid. This could signal a new phase of the COVID-19 pandemic as more hybrid variants may emerge. This is according to the New Scientist, which says that coronaviruses such as SARS-CoV-2 have an evolutionary superpower called recombination, which allows two closely related viruses to mix and match their genomes into novel combinations. Unlike regular mutation, which proceeds slowly one change at a time, recombination can produce wholesale changes in a coronavirus genome in one single swoop. The magazine asks if the hybrid has been detected among actual viruses circulating in people. For now, it says no, although the sequence is from a virus taken from an infected person. After a clash last month over whether EU countries would get their fair share of AstraZeneca's vaccine shipments, Fewer than one-tenth of the doses delivered to Germany have been administered in the initial days of the rollout. Bloomberg reports that some healthcare workers are concerned about side effects amid reports about unexpectedly strong reactions. Germany isn't alone. Some French healthcare workers are also pushing to get shots from Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech. The UK is set to carry out the world's first study to deliberately expose volunteers to the new coronavirus to speed research. The Human Challenge study was approved by a research ethics committee and may eventually help accelerate development of vaccines and treatments and take on variants. The trial, involving as many as 90 people, due to begin within a month, is aimed at initially determining the smallest amount of the virus needed to cause infection. Getting a COVID-19 vaccine in Indonesia will be mandatory for eligible citizens, the government has said. The country is seeking ways to quicken its inoculation program to curb Southeast Asia's largest outbreak. The government will punish citizens who refuse the vaccine, including with fines and delaying or halting the provision of social assistance and administrative services. People in New Zealand will have to wear a face covering on most public transport, the government announced, after the end of a lockdown of Auckland. The Netherlands has set aside 8.5 billion euros in a multi-year support plan for the country's education system to help pupils and schools hit by the pandemic. To remove study delays caused by the outbreak, primary and secondary schools can use extra funds on targeted measures, such as tutoring for pupils in small groups. Air France KLM is poised to get a fresh government bailout after burning through 2.1 billion euros in the final quarter of last year as a resurgent COVID-19 pandemic delayed any recovery in air travel. Talks are ongoing between the carrier's biggest shareholders, the French and Dutch governments, and the European Commission about a rescue package. Bloomberg reports that the value of Airbus's order backlog fell by 98 billion euros to 373 billion euros at the year end, reflecting in part the longer-term damage wrought by the coronavirus pandemic on the health of the aerospace industry. The agency says that while case counts are coming down, new virus strains have created uncertainty about the timing of a global travel recovery. 
Passenger traffic may improve by only 13% in 2021 in a worst-case scenario, the International Air Transport Association has said. That compares with an official forecast of a 50% rebound issued in December. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Coming up, we speak to Sandile Kele, a father of two who made an important discovery about the South Africa coronavirus variant shortly after he enrolled for a PhD. Kele has been hailed by the Financial Times of London for making a vitally important contribution to scientific discovery in the race to overcome the worst public health crisis in living memory. In my undergrad, I studied biomedical sciences, and from there, I did my honors in medical microbiology. And my, uh, my master's uh, is in biochemistry. All this uh, was with the UKZN here in Devon, Wellesley campus. So after my master's uh, degree, I applied for an NRF internship, which as I was accepted at Technology Innovation Agency. I was there for eight months, even though it was a one-year internship. And I got employed by uh, Dr. Alex Gall. Africa Research Institute, Africa, Africa Health Research Institute, and I've been there ever since. So I have been working uh, with Alex for about six years now. And what does your work entail? Are you in the laboratory with viruses under the microscope, or how does this type of science work for people who haven't had the opportunity to study these kinds of subjects uh, or get into the lab? So as a, a, a research lab technologist, what uh, we do is process, process clinical samples. These are, we have some ongoing studies whereby we get um, samples from uh, hospitals around Devon, like your King Edward in Tuli. This comes in the form of a blood, can be a CSF sample, can be a swab sample for SARS-CoV-2. But before uh, Corona came, we were working with them. Um, TB and HIV. So these samples will come into our labs. We'll have to process them, like work in the lab with these, like the process and then store them. And we'll use them for uh, experiments. When it comes to SARS-CoV-2, we started this work around May, where Dr. Alistair formed a group to say, we need to do our part in terms of research on this virus. So that's where... uh, That's how everything started to work with SARS-CoV-2. And tell us, what happened in the lab when you made this important breakthrough? Can you just uh, break that down a bit? Yeah, let me first start by saying, uh, as I've mentioned, that um, we did not start uh, uh, culturing the virus around December, where we did uh, culture the new variant. It's something that I've been doing from around June, when we started receiving samples. So this is part of my PhD project, where I'm looking at uh, to see uh, how the new variants uh, behave. So I've been trying to outgrow these viruses from around June, but then uh, early December when there was a, a new variant circulating, so we acquired a sample from uh, uh, Prof. Tulio, who works in a group that specializes in genomic surveillance. They saw these new variants uh, emerging, and then they gave us a, a swab sample, from which I brought into a lab in a PSA three laboratory, and then infected cells with it to make more of the virus so that we could understand and study the virus. 
And when did the breakthrough come? When was the moment that really excited you in the laboratory? Uh, I think uh, it was a, a Christmas day on the 25th. This is, a, the, this is when we first uh, had the new variant in the lab. Like, enough of it that we could start doing more experiments. And what experiments did you do? Do you work with mice or any petri dishes? Can you just explain what it's like in your lab? Now, in our lab, we work with the cell lines. These are cells so in petri dishes that we don't use animals. And the kind of experiments that we, want, we, we did was to answer the question as to whether antibodies from recovered patients, these are patients that were infected during the first wave, Will these antibodies recognize the new variant as it has changes in it? So those are the kind of uh, study. That's the study that we did. And uh, then you went to your professors and you told them what? Uh, do you mean like after having gotten the results? Yes. Uh, <laughs> usually uh, when I get these results, I'm with Dr. Alex Sekar uh, because it takes me about three days to get the results. I'll go in and infect, then come the following day, we need to stay in and then see how many cells are infected. And we need to go to a microscopy. So usually the day where I need to go to a microscopy, I will ask the testicle to come. We, we, we go together, so <laughs> we saw the result together. And what is the implication of your result? What, is, what does it mean for the spread of COVID-19 and the seriousness of the illness and immunity? Oh, well, uh, our results, um, they showed us that uh, the antibodies, they don't recognize the new variant as much as they recognize the original variant. So these were the first studies, or among the first studies, to show this effect. But now we know that, uh, uh, that there, there has been even more studies that show the same thing that we did. But I think we're, we're amongst the first people to show that there's, uh, the antibodies don't really recognize these new variants. There's diminished recognition of the new variants. And what's next in your research? Are you looking at other variants still or variants from other countries? Uh, so far, we don't have access to variants from other countries, but we are working with what we have. And just from a layman's perspective, or for people who don't, this knowledge of science that you do, what does this all mean to you for the fight against COVID-19, your findings in the laboratory? Well, uh, we we know that the virus now uh, has this ability to escape, uh, to try and escape the immune system, which now makes it uh, challenging to... Uh, to design vaccines and stuff like that, because we've seen, we've heard uh, the news that some of the vaccines are, are less uh, effective in controlling uh, this virus. So it's really, really a bad thing. But we, we are hopeful because some of the vaccines do actually uh, uh, neutralize the new variant. So there, there are some good news. And Sandile, tell me a bit more about yourself, where you grew up, what kind of family you were brought up in, and why you were drawn to this area as a career. Yeah, uh, I grew up in a rural, rural area. It's uh, like 50 kilometers from Durban, like an, an hour drive, or maybe I should say it's a 20-minute drive from the Kingshaga National Airport. It, 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 it's not far from uh, Durban. So that's where I grew up. I did my primary school there. 
Then I moved to Devon 2002 uh, for high school. And then, yeah, that's that's about it. I did my high school here and up there to varsity here in Devon. And I believe that you're part of a big family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are nine of us, nine brothers. Like my father has ten kids, but yeah, that's uh, nothing strange for me. It's like where where I grew up, like in the rural areas, like most of families are like there's so many kids in one family, so it's nothing really out of the ordinary for my assumptions. When did you first notice that you were interested in science? I, I would say that in uh, when I started the varsity. I've always been good in like your biology and those kind of subjects. But the real interest started when I got into varsity. Because there will be a first year that you do all these subjects, your maths or biology and stuff. But you start getting into research in the second and third year. When they give us like these mini projects and then that like you see that, okay, this is something that's uh, Your plans, how far are you advanced with your PhD? Uh, I registered for PhD in May. So it has not even been a year since the register of PhD. So, yeah, but I've managed to we have a, managed to write a, a paper which has been submitted for publication, so we wait for that. So, but I, I have started like, doing more work so that I can be able to write my thesis and try to it. I don't know, next year or this late this year, I don't know. We'll see how much work I get done. So this is really impressive. You started your PhD in May, and then in June you started research that has produced findings that are of world-changing standard, which is the holy grail in academic work. So how long <laughs> yeah, is it going to take you to finish your PhD? Uh, it really depends on how much, how much more work I can do, because uh, you have to have a certain number of papers and stuff like that. But yeah, we'll see. I'm just uh, doing as much as as I can. And what are your broad career plans? For now, for me, it's all about the, uh, concentrating on this current research. Because I, I think uh, even after a year or two, we'll be doing some work in that course too. So I, I really want to understand the virus and have more knowledge on it. I'm doing the virology of the, the virus as it is now. Next, we hear from Robert Langrith about the race to update vaccines for variants. He speaks to Laura Carlson of Bloomberg. Uh, yeah, so what's happening out there, uh, as you know, more than 100 million people uh, around the world have gotten infected, that essentially means, you know, 100 million chances uh, for mutation. When you accumulate enough chances to develop mutation, sometimes uh, the virus will start to uh, mutate and evolve uh, in ways uh, that are that are bad for us. One way that's happened is that in the UK, it's evolved to be more transmissible, and that is the B117 strain that's now rapidly spreading in the US. Now, that strain seems the vaccine seems to be pretty effective against that strain. But what people are really worried about are some mutations that have occurred in South Africa and then some similar ones in Brazil, where the virus appear uh, to have evolved in a way that may allow it to, you know, partially escape the effects of current vaccines. And the uh, strain that people are most worried about uh, is the B1351 strain in uh, South Africa. And in some trials so far uh, where 
vaccines from both Johnson & Johnson and the vaccine from Novavax have been tested in South African patients recently. That Their vaccines were less effective in South Africa where that variant is common. Uh, now, we don't have direct data on this from the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. What we do have is data, kind of lab data, suggesting that the, those vaccines won't generate as high levels of antibodies against uh, this vaccine partially evading strain. Both Moderna and Pfizer still think their vaccines will be effective, but they may not be, you know, quite as powerfully effective. So if it does turn out that they are not as effective as they had hoped against some of these variants, what are the options for drug makers going forward with this problem? The problem is, the worry is, as, you know, these, these, these more people get vaccinated with the existing vaccines and these strains start to spread, you know, these strains could be selected for and, and spread even more widely. And then there's an additional worry that there could be, you know, they could accumulate additional mutations that allow them to even further and more, you know, more significantly escape the vaccine's effects, you know. That's kind of a nightmare scenario, kind of a, a total escape a strain of the, of the virus, which doesn't exist here, but that's kind of the worry. Uh, so what companies are, you know, starting to retool and think about, you know, how to come up with potential potentially either new versions of vaccines to account for these new strains or booster shots uh, that account for the strains will be added on top of the existing vaccine, say, six or 12 months uh, down the line. Now, Moderna uh, has announced that you know, it is going to you know, work on some booster shot, shot studies, including one particularly you know, developed for the South Africa strain. The Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, he said in a call uh, with investors on February 2nd, he said it was increasingly likely that these mutations are, you know, there's going to likely be booster shots in the, in the future and kind of like a long-term market uh, for these vaccines, which, of course, uh, uh, you know, what's bad, I guess, for the world uh, in some ways is potentially good for drug makers. Good. That means drug makers will have products to sell for these vaccines. It's not just a kind of a one-time thing. They'll have products to sell in the future. So how long do we expect it will take for these booster shots to be developed and made available? A good thing about messenger RNA is that, you know, revised versions of vaccine can be developed quite quickly because it's a technology involves, you know, synthetic chemistry. It doesn't involve growing anything, growing viruses or growing cells or proteins in a lab. It's a synthetic chemistry. So that, that can be done faster. That's good news. The tricky part is that it's an evolving situation and, you know, you don't want to develop a booster shot that turns out to be obsolete a few months from now. You want to kind of figure out what the, the main strains that are emerging that have reduced efficacy and, you know, develop new versions of the vaccines against those. And that's kind of a tricky thing because we need to get consensus on kind of what's happening out there. So it's an evolving situation. The FDA Food and Drug Administration has indicated that, you know, it's going to allow companies, if we do need booster shots or you know, second generation versions of the vaccines, it's going to allow companies to move much faster. They're not going to have to do trials, efficacy trials on thousands and thousands of patients like they did the first time. There's going to be kind of a streamlined process based on what we've learned from the first round of vaccines. So these studies should go much faster. I mean, overall, it's not a cause for panic, but it is a cause for concern. And I just want to kind of break down the process a little bit more, you know, just in terms of how booster shots might work. Is it possible that, for example, any of the drug makers, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, whatnot, would develop a booster shot and that would be linked to combat, say, just the South Africa variant? Or could a booster shot address a number of different variants of COVID-19 
Yeah, and so there's, there's a few possibilities, you know, out there. You know, yes, one is you develop. There's one strain that's worrisome. You develop a new, new booster shot that's just against that strain, like just against South Africa. And another possibility uh, is that hey, there's like two or three strains we're kind of worried about. Vaccines might not be quite as effective against circulating in the world, say three months from now, and we want a booster shot that kind of accounts for all three of them, uh, or a new. In a new second generation vaccine that accounts for all three of them, and, they, and, and the authorities, the powers that be, you know, the public health authorities get together and kind of agree you know, what strain should be in a new vaccine or a new booster shot. I mean, that's kind of you know, what happens now each year with the flu vaccine, and there are you know comparisons being made like to that now. Uh, coronavirus, you know, doesn't mutate at the rate that the flu does, but you know, uh, on the other hand, we've let this spread a lot in a lot of people, giving it a lot of chances to mutate. So you know, what happens with the flu is you. You know, each year, you know, authorities try to kind of consent some consensus as to, you know, what strains are going to be circulating and most prominent a few months from now, and then they design a vaccine on that basis. And something similar, you know, could be done for booster shots for, you know, coronavirus uh, vaccines and booster shots in the future. So there is a thought out there. It's, it seems increasingly likely, you know, there's not going to be a one and done situation in the vaccine. There's a good chance we'll need some kind of booster shots in the future, uh, especially if these vaccine evading strains become more prominent. And what's not clear right now is how often we need booster shots. Is this going to, you know, has the virus done like most of the significant mutating it's going to do already? And we've already seen the bad stuff or is there more bad stuff to come? That's kind of a mystery. And then, you know, how, how long will protection last and start to fade with existing vaccines? That's not clear at all. So it's just not clear at all uh, to the extent we need booster shots, how frequent they'll, they'll be, whether it'll be just like once or it'll be like every few years or, you know, worst case scenario every year. And that, that's just simply unclear at this point. So how might this affect someone who is still considering whether to be inoculated right now or whether they should wait for these later generation vaccines that might be more effective against variants? One thing, you know, I, I do want to note is that uh, by no means is this a reason in the U.S. to put off getting a vaccine or delay getting a vaccine. The vaccines we have here are still, you know, highly effective against uh, most of the strains that are that are circulating in the U.S. And the sooner you can get vaccinated, the better. And that would really, really help. So this is but this is by no means a reason not to get inoculated in the U.S. If you, you have an appointment, you should go rush out and do it for sure. brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.